It's Stephanie. And by now on the podcast, we've established that trickle-down economics and neoliberalism have failed. They've failed as economic philosophies. Everything they say that will happen doesn't happen. But we have to do better than that. We have to offer solutions for the future. And luckily, we had the opportunity to sit down with Derek Hamilton from the Roosevelt Institute to talk about the kind of future we can build, the kind of economy we can build that'll actually work for everyone if we got the chance to rewrite the rules. I am Derek Hamilton, the executive director of the Kirwan Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity at Ohio State University and a professor in the Glenn College of Public Affairs with courtesy appointments in both economics and sociology and arts and sciences at Ohio State University. I want to get right into it because you've been part of uh, this really interesting um, set of research around rewriting the rules and so on and so forth. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with the Roosevelt Institute. Tell us a little about that. The project is inspired by the trajectory we've had over the last 50 years of a consolidation of both economic and political power amongst the elite and the corporate sector. And that consolidation is iterative. It is framed in neoliberal economics, uh, a notion that markets are the solution for all our problems, economic or otherwise, and that government intervention should be minimum unless it is trying to facilitate marketized solution. And what's also incorporated in this narrative is the role that race plays. And I like to emphasize that race is not an issue, but frankly, a pillar in this relationship. Race is the mechanism that allows a dominant population to be willing to, in some ways, go along with the status quo of growing inequality in exchange for an agreement of solidifying a horizontal positioning. In other words, people might care about both their relative position and their vertical position. And as we become more vertically unequal, stratification in race is unfortunately used as a tool to serve the interests of this consolidation by offering one group material and psychological benefits associated with their identity in contrast to another group. Yeah, it's super interesting. So, you know, the theme of the Roosevelt Report is that it's all about power. First of all, I think we couldn't agree more. Talk for a minute about why that diagnosis, in the context of sort of neoclassical economics and neoliberalism, is novel. To many listeners, this seems like, well, obvious and intuitively true. Like, of course it's about power. But neoclassical economics sort of assumed away power. Yeah, I think that is spot on. I think the neoclassical understanding of the ways in which markets are fair, efficient, good arbiters, and reward hard work and punish sloth and laziness, ignores power and capital in the first place. It presumes an even playing field without noting the role that initial endowment and power serve in constructing markets and altering markets in the first place. I think that's it. And uh, without government intervention, we end up with scenarios where power does what it does. It reinforces itself. Economic power is used to gain political power, and political power is used as a mechanism by which 
one can facilitate and structure a society so as to enrich themselves. Yeah. I mean, we see it with uh, some of the great works by Tomas Piketty, um, some of the work by Jacob Hacker, some of the recent work by the fellow from uh, Brookings Institute, Richard Reeves, when he has his book Dream Hoarders, where we find that the elite and upper middle class, they try to structure society in a way that offers themselves and their offspring access to the criteria that gets rewarded in the market. So Derek, you really view race as a pillar in this work. Is it possible to have economic equality without also having racial justice? I think when we think of these things as going hand in hand, but often people talk about them in really separate contexts. But can you help connect those dots for people? Without racial justice, we are vulnerable to a system only being temporary. I mean, I guess we can think about history. One might call the New Deal an example of economic justice, but it was not economic justice that was spread across everyone in America. There's a great book by Ira Katz Nelson, which describes when affirmative action was white. That's the title of the book. And it describes the ways in which blacks were, in many ways, excluded from the benefits of the New Deal. There was the Faustian bargain in which the federal government did not have anti-discrimination mechanisms in the implementation of the New Deal legislated, and the federal government, the policies were implemented on a local level, and for example, a hostile Jim Crow context. And then by design, many of the occupations in which blacks were overrepresented were not included in the, in the New Deal legislation. So with that Faustian bargain to get it passed, one might tout the New Deal as having a large element of economic justice, but not racial justice. Such a system where we were divided and stratified allowed for the possibility of establishing the benefits and property rights and whiteness to begin with and leaves a population vulnerable to want to use that. We had some games in terms of racial justice with the civil rights movement where there was huge relative progress for blacks in comparison to whites from like 1948 up to about the early to mid-1970s, and much of that can be touted to the civil rights legislation. But then there was a backlash, and that backlash is in the form of, in my opinion, this neoliberal moment. And what made us vulnerable to the notions of and the perniciousness of neoliberalism was the larger population, again, was willing to sacrifice vertical positioning in order to maintain their horizontal positioning or their property rights and whiteness. What we've called uh, neoliberalism on the podcast is a protection racket for rich people. And I'm struck by the similarities of neoliberalism to straight-up racism. I mean, what you're saying (laughs) is that neoliberalism is a form of racism. What I think of it is is just racism, but for money, (laughs) if you get what I mean. I get what you mean. You know, and I perhaps can articulate this better by saying that race becomes a tool, a mechanism, so to speak, in neoliberalism. Race becomes, you know, a mechanism by which you can use to bargain with a population. That's what I'm trying to get at. And, And, you know, we've talked about the fear side of neoliberalism, where one group can be said, this group is threatening your way of life, it's threatening your economic positioning, and that's used to reinforce a system where we say we need small government or we, we need government that 
doesn't facilitate uh, this population and we can scapegoat both government and blacks as uh, threatening our way of life. But on the positive side, and you kind of alluded to this in your question, the allegory, the story, the narrative of neoliberalism is seductive. It's appealing. This notion that it's fair, this notion that you can turn your proverbial rags into riches, that all you have to do is is really work hard. If you study hard and use your ingenuity, the market can facilitate your growth and your economic mobility that you literally can be part of the the wealthy class. That's seductive. Of course, as we talked about earlier, what's missing in that is capital in the first place, that it takes capital to generate more capital, that wealth begets more wealth. That part of the narrative is completely missing. Um, But nonetheless, it is very appealing. And just for clarity, I'm not anti-market per se. I'm I'm careful in trying to describe the market as evil because the market itself is amoral. It's not with morals. It's not immoral, nor is it moral. It's amoral. And the market has some positive attributes. But what we can do is we could have government interventions to ensure that goods that are so essential for individual self-determination and dignity are not at the whim of firms trying to meet their fiduciary responsibility by reducing quantity and using price as a rationing mechanism so as to not ensure that everybody has access to these goods. And we can be specific. I'm talking about the right to a job. I'm talking about the right to health care the right to a quality education from grade school all the way through college. I'm talking about the right to decent housing, the right to food, clothing, shelter, et cetera, the right to capital. In other words, there are a set of essential goods and services that without them, people really don't have agency in their lives. So this turns the whole rhetoric of neoliberalism on its head. Oftentimes we use terms like markets provide freedom and choice, We know if you have no income, you don't really have choice. If you're homeless, choice becomes a concept that is really not tenable for you. You need a certain set of basic goods so that you can flourish in your life. And if the market is inadequate in providing them, there is a role for the government to provide adequate alternatives, not in a way that neoliberalism talks about in terms of using the market to sanction irresponsible behavior, but in a way that the government uses market mechanisms by providing public alternatives as a way to discipline firms that are engaged in extractive, exploitive activities for these essential goods. I come at it a little bit differently. Um, I think you're right when you say that markets in in and of themselves are amoral, but markets are simply human constructs. And if they're set up effectively, they actually deliver moral outcomes. Markets in a theoretical sense are amoral, but we don't have a theoretical sense in the way we apply and construct markets. Those are concepts in our economic textbook. But you are right that the construct of markets always has human elements. So you've said that we should change the structure of corporate power, but also give really specific roles for government and how government should assert itself in American lives. One thing you mentioned was education. I think you also mentioned climate change. 
what else is on the table? Like, what else should the public sector be more engaged with and involved in providing? What kinds of basic goods? So in the report, we talked about a, a one-two punch response, and one is to break up plutocracy at the top. In other words, we have such a high concentration of economics at the top that that much power allows for not only economic capture, but political capture as well. So we need something to break that up. Uh, you know, some of the presidential candidates are out talking about wealth tax, inheritance tax, et cetera, um, but we will need something to break up that concentration of wealth at the top. But that's not enough. We need a public sector that is proactively engaged in using its power to provide facilitation for the population to flourish. And what might that be in concrete terms? I've talked a lot about a federal job guarantee. A federal job guarantee would not only eliminate involuntary unemployment, it would um, eliminate working poverty, the notion of working poverty, and it would allow workers that are already working bargaining power to attain better wages and working conditions without the fear of being destitute from the threat of unemployment. It would also allow us to rebuild our public infrastructure in order to provide a care economy, for example. What if we were to think about, just like we did with public schools, ensuring that everybody has adequate child care, adequate elder care, and ad adequate adult care? Um, that's one example, but we can use the benefits of a federal job guarantee in ways that I can't even imagine right now. We could rethink the type of economy we want and the type of society we want. We could literally green our entire economy. Uh, are you optimistic or pessimistic? If we enacted a bunch of this stuff in the report, will we get everything done? Like, what do you think? I'm extremely optimistic. I am gleeful that we are in this moment where we're starting to push back against the 50-year narratives of neoliberalism. I am ecstatic that we can even have a conversation about reparations in a national frame, and it's not ostracized as something that is radical, and it still might be considered radical, but the fact that we can even have this in a mainstream media format. In the past, we treated race as something that was a third rail of politics where we only euphemistically talked about it. Now we can be explicit about racism. Now we can be explicit about a need to curb corporate power and instill a wealth tax. Now we can be explicit about the role of the private, of the public sector to offer competitive alternatives. If you could see my face, you'd see a big <laughs> smile because I, I'm excited about the possibilities that we really can have the society that affords everyone an opportunity to be their best selves. Well, listen, thank you so much for spending time with us. It was really great to talk to you and hear your perspectives. This is a lot of fun for me as well, so okay. thank you. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Thanks so much. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with the Young Turks Network. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.